It's your Kali. What's up? The following program was brought to you by Yolokali, keeping it weird since 1997. Oh. Who's that? Who are you? You're not allowed to be in here. Hey, yo, somebody get their grandma. Huh? Ah! Ah! Nah, you gotta do it like this. What's Up is back with another two hours of fully youth-produced content, tapping into the matters and concerns of youth in Chicago. As well as all the crazy, wacky, tea-sipping, gossip-spilling, weird shenanigans that we, youth, get up to. Listen to your own risk, because your mind might explode. The chances are low, but never zero. So strap in, and let's get into the show! This is What's Up on WLPN LP Lumpin Radio 105.5 FM Chicago. You're listening to Johnny along with Maru, Sam, and Ariandi. And in spirit and audio, Alondra, who couldn't be here today. And today we're here to educate and inform you about the expansive field of medicinal herbs slash plants and its wealthy presence throughout the past, present, and future. This is Dreaming Green, an Earth Day special on healing plants. Thank you for listening in. Right now, we're going to tune into my audio piece about the history of the legalization of marijuana in the U.S. I hope you enjoy. It's a short segment. Thank you. In order to understand its road to legalization and modern-day acceptance of weed as we know it, it's important to first talk about why was cannabis ever made illegal in the first place. There's a brief history on how weed became legal in the United States. Marijuana came to the U.S. from Asia in the early 1900s and landed in the U.S. around the 1910s. It first landed in Louisiana and Texas. You can trace the root of cannabis to the city of New Orleans, a port city that was a melting pot of cultures and the birthplace of jazz. The history of cannabis in America has long been tied to the history of music in America. Almost 100 years ago, the biggest advocates for weed in America were jazz musicians. Artists who could use cannabis were known to be better musicians and improvisers. Louis Armstrong and other famous black musicians became household names. Jazz in its day was treated as hip-hop. Marijuana was made illegal because of the jazz scene. It brought black and white people together, and politicians wanted none of that. Not to mention, there is this irrational fear of African Americans who were using marijuana in New Orleans would then use it to seduce white teenagers. Marijuana became a social problem when there were reports of minorities using cannabis. The name cannabis was actually shifted to marijuana in order to make the association with Mexicanness. It's time for the Longine Chronoscope, a television journal of the important issues of the hour. This country rejoices in the medical miracles that are winning victories over disease for us and for our children, but there are some disquieting headlines too and some of them underscore the increase in drug addiction. Our guest tonight knows more about the worldwide traffic in drugs than any man on earth. Commissioner Anslinger, you've served under four presidents, I guess. You feel that the drug addiction situation is getting worse in this country? Well, you must look at it from the, uh, the overall picture. Uh, before man, is that the repo man? man? I believe he's lost his mind. I think he lost his mind. 
One of the first politicians to actually speak out against marijuana was Harry J. Anslinger. Harry J. Anslinger was an associate in the Prohibition Department and was a known racist. In 1930, he became the first head of the Bureau of Narcotics. He was known for the fake PR and news that he spread against the use of marijuana. He condemned it as it was mostly used in black and brown communities. A lot of news stories that included black and brown people committing violent crimes were always tied to marijuana, although there was never any proof that marijuana incited such incidents. Under Anslinger's leadership, anti-marijuana propaganda was everywhere, and in 1937, marijuana was banned in the U.S. Mayor LaGuardia of New York City commissioned a comprehensive report to be done on cannabis. The report found that none of Anslinger's claims were true. But the real truth is, Anslinger didn't care about cannabis at the end of the day. He just didn't want white people to mix with different races. LaGuardia's report found that most people who were arrested under cannabis charges were people of color. Because of the ever-present possibility of integration, Anslinger's team targeted the black community harder than ever. In two critical pieces of legislation, the Boggs Act of 1951 and the Eisenhower Narcotics Act 1956, mandatory minimum laws were imposed. Low-level drug convictions could result in over 20-year prison terms. When the Schaefer Commission was published, Nixon doubled down against marijuana and it became political. It was no longer we arrested them because of their skin color, it was we arrested them because of drugs. Nixon's entire war on drugs was a war on black people. With the rise of hippie culture in the 60s and 70s, white people started smoking marijuana, and then finally legalization was being talked about. While black and brown people were being arrested for marijuana charges, white people with office jobs were abusing cocaine and similar drugs, were assisted with their addictions. In the 80s, Reagan further pushed the agenda that marijuana was a deadly and addictive drug. It was really just an excuse for the police to crack down on black communities. Up till now, black and brown people were arrested the most for marijuana possession, but that didn't mean they were its biggest consumers at the time. Studies showed that everybody was using cannabis. The U.S. only became interested in legalization once they realized they could profit from it. Cannabis as it stands is a billion dollar industry. And although weed was as mainstream as it could be, its legalization didn't change anything. Black and brown people were continuously being arrested and required to serve minimum sentences with little to no chance of release. It didn't matter how it happened or how much was present, arrest is inevitable if caught with possession. Even now, with cannabis being legal almost everywhere, there are still people in jail serving sentences they received over 20 years ago. Suddenly, white people wanted something, and weed is legal almost everywhere. You would think, after all that, black people have got to be dominating the market. But no. An article from Business Insider states, White men compromise 70% of the C-suite at the 14 largest publicly traded cannabis companies by market value in the U.S. and Canada. Of the 75 executives surveyed, 5 or 7% identified as black. So the next time you're thinking of buying some, think about who made it possible for you to possess it in the first place. Hey everyone, my name is Maru, I use they them pronouns, and today my piece is called Pachamama's Garden, an exploration of plant medicines. 
Today I want to explore the fascinating history and uses of plants as a healing modality, but more specifically psychedelics and entheogenic plants. For thousands of years, humans have found ways to aid and cure the worst of ailments, whether physical, mental, or emotional. We have sought medicines to heal and survive. But what are those medicines and where do they come from? I want to start by talking about herbalism. Herbalism, also known as botanical medicine, is the study and use of plants for medicinal purposes. It's a practice that's been passed down through generations, and many indigenous cultures continue to use plants as a primary form of medicine. Not to mention that most medicines in present day, you know, pills and things like that, have origins within plants and plant medicines that indigenous communities have passed down. Another example would be in the Amazon rainforest, there are over 80,000 plant species, and many indigenous communities use them for medicinal purposes. Overall, plants and fungi make up 84.6% of all biomass on Earth. Herbalists use various parts of plants, such as roots, leaves, flowers, and bark, to create remedies that can help treat a wide range of health conditions. The use of herbs in medicine is based on the belief that plants contain natural chemical compounds that can have therapeutic effects on the body. Herbal remedies can, take, can be taken internally, such as in the form of teas or tinctures, or even applied topically in the form of salves or creams. So today I really want to talk about psychoactive plants and fungi that are often referred to as psychedelics and less commonly known as entheogens or entheogenic plants and fungi. So let's talk about what the definition of these, you know, words are. I feel like they're kind of like shared and spread throughout society, but not really has there been like a really in-depth conversation or one that involves like younger people about what these substances are. Psychedelics specifically are a class of substances, often referred to as drugs, that have the ability to induce altered states of consciousness, often characterized by changes in perception, mood, and thought patterns. These substances include, but are not limited to, LSD, psilocybin mushrooms, DMT, and mescaline. The term psychedelic was first coined by British psychiatrist, psychiatrist Humphrey Osmond in 1957 and comes from the Greek words psyche, meaning mind or soul, and delos, meaning manifest or visible. On the other hand, entheogenic plants are a subset of psychedelics. These are used specifically for spiritual or religious purposes. The term entheogen comes from the Greek words entheos, meaning full of the divine, and genisthai, meaning to come into being. So really these words mean fully divine and to come into fully divinity. Entheogenic plants have been used for religious, magical, or spiritual purposes in many parts of the world, and like I had said before, for thousands of years. 
Examples of entheogens include psilocybin, ayahuasca, peyote, and the San Pedro cactus. These fungi and plants are often seen as sacred, and they are used in ritual contexts to connect with the divine, to heal, and to explore the inner self. Like I said, they've been used for thousands of years, and they've been used to also supplement many diverse practices geared towards achieving transcendence. These plants have been used in divination, meditation, yoga, sensory deprivation, healing, prayer, trance, rituals, chanting, imitation of sounds, drumming, and dance. Well, to name a few. Indigenous cultures around the world especially have their own unique systems of healing and medicine that have been passed down for generations. One example I know of personally would be the people of the Andes, who have a deep connection to the earth and the natural world. Many indigenous Andean traditional practices incorporate the use of entheogenic plants, specifically ayahuasca, the San Pedro cactus, and coca leaves. Ayahuasca is a very powerful brew, and it's made out of the ayahuasca vine and other plants. It's used in traditional healing ceremonies and is believed to have spiritual and even physical healing properties. The popularity of ayahuasca, I believe, has increased within the last couple of years. Like personally, I've seen a lot of retreats for ayahuasca or, you know, people who claim to be shamans who will hold like ayahuasca ceremonies here in the States. And there's not really that much like education around it before people actually try to, you know, get into it or uh, try it for themselves. Similarly, the San Pedro cactus is another entheogenic plant used by Andean people. San Pedro contains mescaline, which is a psychoactive compound that produces effects similar to those of other entheogens, such as psilocybin and ayahuasca. The use of San Pedro is traditional in Andean medicine, and it's believed to have so many health benefits, which include pain relief, improved digestion, and the reduction of inflammation. Research has even shown that the use of San Pedro in conjunction with psychotherapy can have therapeutic benefits for mental health disorders such as depression and anxiety. It's also believed to help individuals connect with nature and their inner selves, leading to a sense of well-being and personal growth. Another example would be cocoa leaves, which are also an important part of the Andean culture. The leaves contain alkaloids that have stimulant properties and are traditionally used for medicinal and ceremonial purposes. Cocoa leaves are often chewed or brewed into tea and are believed to have a variety of health benefits, including improving digestion, relieving altitude sickness, which is very common in the Andes as they are very high mountains, and increasing energy and stamina. Across the world, indigenous cultures often view entheogenic substances as sacred and use them to connect to the divine, gain insight into the natural world, 
and promote healing. But due to colonization and targeted persecution, many people indigenous to the Andes, myself included, and other indigenous communities around the world, are now finding themselves to be reuniting with the knowledge of these ancient medicines. A step for this reunification is to acknowledge the true potential for entheogens and the the validity of indigenous peoples in the Andes and across the world who have held this knowledge as sacred and true, which is now only being confirmed by research and studies across the world. Research that is often held in academic or um, like just fields of people who have money and access to resources that many indigenous people do not currently. One of the most well-known entheogenic plants is psilocybin-containing mushrooms. Indigenous cultures around the world have used these mushrooms for thousands of years in traditional healing ceremonies. And when I mean around the world, I mean in several continents, as mushrooms can be found in every single continent except Antarctica. In the 1950s, psilocybin mushrooms gained international attention when American banker and amateur mycologist Gordon Wasson visited a Mazatec healer and shaman from Hualta de Jimenez, a town in Oaxaca, Mexico, who used psilocybin-containing mushrooms in her healing ceremonies. Her name is Maria Sabina. She was born in 1894 and passed away in 1985. Maria Sabina was known for her use of psilocybin-containing mushrooms in healing ceremonies. She learned about the mushrooms from her grandmother, who was also a healer. Maria Sabina believed that the mushrooms were a sacred gift from the gods and had the power to heal physical and spiritual ailments. In the 1950s, Maria Sabina gained international attention when she was visited by Gordon Wasson, who was searching for information about the use of psychedelic mushrooms in indigenous cultures. Wasson wrote an article about his experience with Maria Sabina and the mushrooms, published in Life magazine in 1957. This helped spark interest in the use of psilocybin in the Western culture. However, Maria Sabina would later express regret for revealing her sacred practices to outsiders, as she felt that it cheapened and commodified their use. Psilocybin mushrooms have a long history of traditional use in indigenous cultures, but they've been very stigmatized in Western culture. They're currently classified as a Schedule I drug, which means that according to the government, they are considered to have a high potential for abuse and no recognized medical use. However, many, many recent studies, and even studies dating back to like the 1960s, have shown that psilocybin may have therapeutic benefits for treating mental health disorders such as depression, anxiety, and PTSD. In fact, 
California, Colorado, and Oregon have recently legalized the use of psilocybin mushrooms for medicinal and adult use purposes. And many other states are currently researching for more potential therapeutic benefits and are on their way to legalization as we know it. This follows a similar route of cannabis being legalized throughout the states, starting with, you know, the medicinal use and then kind of going into the actual recreational adult use, which I really do hope that mushrooms can follow the same suit and both cannabis and mushrooms can be decriminalized and taken off the Schedule 1 drug list. While entheogenic plants like psilocybin mushrooms have been used for centuries for spiritual and healing purposes, their recent commodification and commercialization have led to their demonization by U.S. media and propaganda. Speaking to the fears of Maria Sabina, they are often seen as a fun thing rather than a serious tool for personal growth and healing. So I also wanted to talk about that a bit because personally, I've really heard a lot of people really be interested in mushrooms or just entheogenic plants in general, but specifically with mushrooms as their popularity popularity grows in Chicago, a lot of people, like I said, do see them as a fun thing or a new experience to try without really learning about the history or the indigenous peoples who have helped carry on the mushrooms knowledge. That would be an example when, you know, I asked friends who have talked about it and I bring up Maria Sabina and I try to talk or, you know, maybe talk more about her and the way that mushrooms were even introduced to the United States. It's often an unknown fact and often overlooked that mushrooms and many entheogenic plants were introduced into the United States and Western culture by indigenous people being used and commercialized, commodified by white people, often rich people, which is still going on today and happening in many industries. The commercialization of psilocybin mushrooms and their incorporation to Western medicinal and cultural practices without proper recognition of their indigenous origins amounts to neo-colonialization which we'll talk more about in a second. Thank you so much for listening. And this is Pachamama, Pachamama's garden. And we're going to be talking a bit more after this break. Thank you so much. Welcome back, everyone. So this is What's Up on LPN, LPN LP, Lumpen Radio, 105.5 FM, Chicago. This is Maru, and I'm talking about entheogenic plants right now. My piece is called Bachamama's Garden, an Exploration of Plant Medicines. I just recently left off talking about the commercialization of psilocybin mushrooms and how they were incorporated into Western medicine 
and cultural practices without proper recognition, which is another form of neo-colonization. I want to continue this idea and talk about how this exploitation can take many forms, such as biopiracy, which is the unauthorized appropriation of knowledge and genetic resources of indigenous communities by individuals or institutions seeking exclusive monopoly control through patents or intellectual property. This neocolonization can also be seen in forms of cultural appropriation, where aspects of traditional cultures are taken and used for personal or commercial gain without re actual understanding or respect to their significance or the communities that they come from. To avoid neocolonization in the context of psilocybin mushrooms and entheogens across the world, it's very, very important to acknowledge and respect the cultural and spiritual significance of these substances to indigenous communities and to work towards equitable partnerships and collaborations that honor and compensate these communities for their contributions to our understanding of these substances. I say compensate because oftentimes the people who have upheld this sacred knowledge are overlooked and are used for their knowledge without fully being acknowledged or compensated, like I said. Oftentimes, people who have access to the resources and access to the money will make millions, even billions, off of this sacred knowledge. It's important to take precautions when using entheogens or psychedelics. Precautions can be paying attention to the you know cultural and spiritual significance that these substances have within other communities and cultures but it's also very important to know that these substances can have profound effects on the mind and should be approached with care and caution it's very crucial to do personal research and be well informed additionally Individuals with a history of mental health conditions, such as psychosis or, you know, bipolar disorder or even PTSD, like myself, should exercise extreme caution and seek professional guidance before using these substances. It's important for individuals to educate themselves on the responsible and respectful use of entheogens, and for society as a whole to move away from the stigmatization and demonization of these powerful tools for healing and personal growth. We must all strive to promote respectful use of these plants and fungi while respecting their indigenous roots. With the right education and research, plant medicine has the potential to revolutionize our understanding of health and well-being. I want to thank you for listening to me as I took a dive into learning about herbalism, psychedelics, and entheogens. And remember to stay informed and respect all plant medicines, as well as the communities that have protected and shared their knowledge. I want to share a few um, resources. Like if you're interested in learning more about psychedelics and entheogens, I definitely recommend visiting Psychedelic Support, as well as The Ancestor Project and The Fireside Project, all on Instagram. Specifically, The Fireside Project is a project that is going on for support for people who may be 
you know, using psychedelics or just like any substances. And if you guys are having a bad time or a good time or just need somebody to talk to, the Fireside Project is a great organization and they're really trained to be there in support of you, especially when you're going through, um, you know, a psychedelic trip. So I also want to recognize the people across the world fighting to protect these medicines and our mother earth that is the home to us all. As we celebrate International Earth Day, let us recognize and thank the indigenous communities that consistently put their lives on the line for our earth. I specifically want to acknowledge Stop Cop City, the movement to defend and save the Wilani forest in so-called Atlanta, Georgia, from a proposed 90 million 85-acre police training facility slated to be built in the Wilani South River Forest. I especially want to ask everybody to take a moment to honor the forest defender, anarchist, and overall friend, Tortuguita, who was murdered by Georgia State Troopers while they were peacefully sitting with their hands up in protest to save Wilani Forest. Tomorrow's their birthday, and they should be here to celebrate it. Thank you again for listening to my piece, and I want to bring into discussion Johnny, Ariandi, and Sam, just to talk a bit more about their thoughts on entheogens and psychedelics. I was wondering just your thoughts, and maybe if you learned anything from what I had just shared, or if anything is like, you know, surprising to you, or maybe... Also, you could share, like, what you've heard or know about psychedelics or entheogens. I don't know that much, but I would say that I do know that there are people out there that take different type of psychedelics, but they don't know what they're really getting into. They might hear something, but then they will dive right into it without making sure they're hydrated, just the necessary basic fundamentals before you go on a trip and... Mm -hmm. Especially learning the history that you just described, people should become more aware of the different types of, of psychedelics out there so that they can know what's helpful for them, like how there's ayahuasca for, for people who need spiritual release or like uh, spiritual clearance and stuff like that. And um, I, most importantly, I want to say that Cop City is definitely should be stopped because they are going to be much more hard on psychedelics when places like that open up, considering that around that area of Atlanta, that's where a lot of people, they go and they get their stuff from, whether it's naturally or it's from a store that they harness the psychedelics themselves. And if you build something huge like that in a forest, you are low-key damaging the earth and taking away from yourself. That's very true. Um, I thought it was really interesting how you mentioned that there's like a resource group that people can reach out if they have questions on psychedelics like I've never heard of that and I think that's like really important because I feel like people might like not have the right information either it's been just kind of like they've heard from people like how to take it I think it's just important to have that proper information that proper like support that people can go to for when taking psychedelics because I feel like it shouldn't be like scary it should be a new experience and yeah that resource is definitely important. Right. Oftentimes taking or even ingesting psychedelics, let alone having them, is like criminalized and demonized, mm -hmm. like I was saying. And yeah, that peer support line, uh, Fireside Project, uh, the number for it, if you guys are interested or need it, is 
473-7433. And they, are, they have trained volunteers that offer support to people in the midst of psychedelic experiences. Uh, pe- they have people holding space for others who are in the midst of psychedelic experiences and you know that need to integrate their experiences as well. First question, when was your first time you visited a botanica and for what reason? Um, like last year. Why? Because my back hurts. Why did you go to them and not like a regular doctor? Because I feel like not getting to the medicine stuff, better be in a natural way. What's like, What? why is the natural thing better? Because it has no chemicals. It has no addictions. I can say so. Do you currently take any natural medicines right now? Yes. What kind? Oregano. Why do you take oregano? Oregano kills bacteria for any other, like um, on your throat and your nose. It's a very good treatment for infections on the throat. I think so. Yeah, something like that. How has it been taking oregano? Like, explain your experience with it. Uh, Oregano kills infections. But did you feel anything when taking it? Pretty bad. (laughs) You cannot swallow the oregano easily. (laughs) All right. So do you also visit the doctor in addition to taking the natural medicine? Or do you feel like there's any differences between those? No. I think I feel really good with that one. I don't take uh, medicine for flu or things like that. Oregano will kill it. Do you have any other comments or just things you want to say about the natural medicine? The Yes. People should be more into the natural medicine because that's the future. When was the first time you visited a botanica and for what reason? I visited the botanica about three years ago after um, the pandemia. And I had back back pain and just wanted to try something, something else. What did you try? Um, it was a massage. It was a, a massage with like natural herbs, and I can't remember the name, but it was just natural herbs. How did you feel? I felt great. Took away my back pain. How would you say the experience was like during your massage? It was weird, um, but after I felt relieved, I tr- I began trusting it more. Do you currently take any natural medicines? I don't. Have you ever taken any in the past? Uh, yes, I feel like I do mostly herbal teas, but not medicine. What type of teas? Oh, yeah, I remember. It was Arnica. Arnica. And that was used by my grandma and my mom. And um, it helps with healing. It has healing properties. So after surgery, uh, the Arnica helps you heal faster. That's what I had. How did you feel after taking the tea? 
I felt uh, improvement. I felt like I healed faster, and you could actually take that anytime, not just only for surgery. So do you visit the doctor in addition to taking natural medicines? Do you feel there's any differences with that? I do. Um, I think it's most, it mostly adds to what the doctor could give you, or sometimes doctors, um, they don't prescribe anything for certain, um, for certain things you have. So it's just in addition to medicine, I guess. Do you have any other comments on natural medicines overall? Yeah, we should, we should all learn about plants, med- medicine, natural medicine, and what it does to your body and how it helps. Okay, uh, aquí estoy con Guadalupe, a.k.a. my mom. Shout out. Um, okay, ¿cuándo fue la primera vez que fuiste a una botánica y qué compraste? Ay, hace muchos años, como 30 años. ¿30 años? Sí. Compré un té que le llama té de manzanilla. Uh-huh. Ah, supuestamente ese té es bueno para... Los cólicos menstruales de la mujer, que toda la mujer padece. Eh, la, para tu malestar de estómago. Y uh, para relajar también. Te relaja bien. Y, pues es un té saludable. Uh-huh. Un té natural saludable. A ver, la segunda pregunta. Se me olvidó. Okay. ¿Y ahorita estás tomando unas medicinas naturales? Eh, naturales no. No. ¿No quieres hablar de las semillas que compraste? Oh, yeah. Eh, eh, tengo una, una semilla que le llaman... Es de moringa. Uh-huh. Y supuestamente te ayuda. Tiene beneficios, o sea, para beneficios buenos. Pero a mí me la recomendaron que para bajar de peso. ¿Y crees que sí te está bajando de peso? Mm, sí, baja de peso. <risa> es lenta porque todo lo natural es lento. Uh-huh. So, pero sí sirve. Uh-huh sabe amarga no me gusta el sabor pero los um, no me gusta el sabor pero es buena para tu organismo y qué prefieres de la, la medicina natural a la medicina de farmacia eh, a mí me sirve más la medicina de farmacia sí porque la natural la usaban mucho en México bueno también acá pero la natural es buena pero es muy lenta Y la medicina de, um, ¿cómo? Farmacia. Uh-huh. Es buena, pero también tiene um, consecuencias. Uh-huh. Pero pues, yo prefiero la, la de farmacia. Ok. Yeah. Y, a ver, ¿cuál um, botánica, cuál, 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 primer, cuál fue la primera botánica que, que tuviste? Botánica Guadalupana, a la 18, la Island. ¿Y se ha quedado ahí de esos 30 años? Ya, yeah, todavía está ahí. Oh, my God. Uh-huh. Todavía, tiene, todavía tiene, tiene mucho tiempo, todavía está ahí la farmacia. Uh-huh. Yeah. ¿Y cuáles um, remedios naturales te han, te han dado mucho beneficio? ¿Cierto? ¿Naturales? De, de, de que, como lo, de, lo, lo que te acuerdas. Está un té mexicano uh-huh. que le llaman té de tila. Ese té es muy bueno para dormir. Te quita el estrés, te relaja y duermes muy, muy, muy a gusto. Es algo natural y bueno, eso sí me ha funcionado bien. 
Ok, ok. Mm. Ok, ¿no tienes unos últimos um, comentarios? ¿Cómo? ¿De qué? De lo que sea, de botánicas, de cosas que te gustan de las botánicas, cosas que no te gustan. Uh, de la botánica, pues las botánicas tienen a... Me gustan cosas que venden las botánicas porque venden, o sea, mucho producto bueno, natural. Lo único que no me gusta es el precio, <risa> porque está bien caro todo. Bueno, también la clínica es cara, sí pero lo que tiene la clínica es que tú compras unas vitaminas uh -huh. y las vitaminas oh, te duran por mucho tiempo y tiene un vencimiento uh -huh. por mucho tiempo. Eh, lo natural, pues, o sea, son plantas, uh -huh. pero pues para opción, bueno, para mí una opción buena de de curar un dolor o unas náuseas o algo, es mejor la medicina de, de farmacia, mm. porque es más rápido. Sí. El natural es bueno, pero es muy lento. Mm. Mucha gente prefiere los productos naturales, mm. porque pues, no son dañinos, ¿no? Mm. Pero pues, depende del problema que tengas. Mm -hmm. Si es, por ejemplo, un dolor de cabeza o no sé, un malestar de estómago o algo, se supone que la medicina de farmacia es más rápida. Mm. Eh, pero es opcional, mucha gente prefiere la medicina, la, las hierbas y pastillas, todo eso natural. Mm. Pero yo por mi experiencia, pues yo he, he tomado más la medicina de farmacia, mm. porque es más rápida. Sí, pero a veces se tarda mucho para tener cita, ¿no? Para un, no, pues um, ya, yeah, tienes que ir al doctor. Sí, pero como te cobran y para la cita y luego yeah. para... Pues, uh -huh. pues sí, lo único que, uh, pues si es un problema grande, si sí tienes que ir al doctor, pero si es algo sencillo, lo agarras ahí en Walgreens, uh -huh. Walmart, porque ahí tienen los farmacéuticos, uh -huh. ellos también te pueden recetar algo, algo sencillo. Okay. Ya, yeah. y la botánica, pues la botánica la usa la gente como más para otras cosas uh -huh. que como para algo para tu, tu estómago. Las pastillas y los test naturales son buenos, pero son muy lentos mm. en ese el efecto. ¿Y tú crees en las, um, en las medicinas como, como cuando te... ¿Cómo se dicen? ¿En las li, la limpias? ¿Tú crees en las limpias? ¿Las limpias? Sí, cuando te las... ¿Tú estás hablando como limpieza como de estómago? Ajá, no, no, no las limpias, como cuando la gente te, te está sobando con, con un huevo o algo así. O oh, las limpias que hace. Ajá. Ah, pues mucha gente cree en esas cosas, pero no sé, yo no creo en eso. <risa> okay. No, okay. no creo en eso de las limpias porque ya cada quien trae su mala suerte. <risa> pues sí, porque si te vas mal, pues obvio te va mal, ¿no? Uh -huh. Y si te va bien. Mucha gente va que para que le lean las cartas, que para que sus velas y todo eso, pero ay. Pues en realidad es una pérdida de dinero. <risa> sí, okay. es una pérdida de dinero porque, pues, o sea, una vela se va a acabar. ¿Qué te uh -huh. va a hacer una vela? No te hace nada. Una limpia, pues, bañate, ¿no? Y te limpias, <risa> o sea, hello. Uh -huh. Pero, pues yo de las farmacias mexicanas, para serte sincera, yo nomás la he agarrado como para un té. Uh -huh. Porque uh -huh. venden muchas cosas, venden que amuletos y que todas esas cosas, pero eso es carísimo. Uh -huh. pues, ¿Para qué? Simple y sencillamente, pues el respeto de cada quien no para mí, no, no me llama la atención todo mm. eso. Ok, está bien. Uh -huh. Ok, gracias, ma. Love you. Love you too. Ya es todo. 
Hello, everyone. My name is Sam, and for this segment, we will be talking about the herbal, natural, and traditional healing medicines that are very prominent in the Latina culture. I wanted to get an insight into the experiences of those who have used these natural resources. So, Ariandi and I went ahead and interviewed our parents, asking them about their experience. I think this topic is important to bring up in the discussion of self-medicating because this is also a way in which people try and find healing with the use of natural resources, showcasing as well the importance of botanicas. For those who aren't familiar with what botanicas are and what they do, they're basically a store that sells herbal or plant-based products that include over-the-counter herbal medicines that customers can buy without prescription. The literal meaning of botanica is plant store. But botanicas do much, much more than provide a place for people to purchase the herbs, flowers, roots, and plants used in traditional medicine and religious ceremonies. So you might be wondering what type of natural medicine is being used as well as its functions. So to list a few, first we have the most popular one, which is chamomile, which is used to help with anxiety, when feeling agitated or stressed out, when a person can't sleep, or simply for an upset stomach. The second one is mint, which has antioxidant, antifungal, and antibacterial properties. It can treat digestive issues and is good for managing stress and anxiety. The third one is oregano, which is used for cough, digestion, fighting against bacteria and viruses, and for parasite infections. Chamomile, mint, and oregano can be infused in teas and can be found in oils as well. Healing practices are also just as important. First, we have sobadas, which are traditional Mexican massages that have been used to treat digestive issues, muscle and skeletal pain, and to manage the effects of trauma on the body, mind, and spirit. During a sobada, the practitioner will likely use an oil or an ointment made from plant matter. Second, we have smudging, which is the practice of burning medicinal plant matter and using the smoke and vapor to cleanse and bless bodies, minds, and the environment. And the third one would be the classic egg cleanse, in which a person clears negative energy by rolling an uncooked egg over the body. This is an ancient ritual typically conducted by a shaman or curanderos or curanderas. Because of these different healing medicines and practices, I would also like to hear from my group. Of course, you don't necessarily have to have a personal experience with it, but I would just like to hear your thoughts on natural medicine overall. So, what do you guys think? Do you guys like it? Do you not like it? Just any thoughts that you have on natural medicine? Mm-hmm. Um. One time when I was a kid, like, we had to go to a sobadora because, like, I wasn't eating or, like, throwing, I was, like, throwing up and, like, I just wouldn't, like, do anything. Like, I wouldn't talk to my parents. Like, it was really bad, like, but it was, like, I mean, people can say it's, like, like outside factors or whatever, but basically it took me a sobadora. And, like, what was crazy is, um, I mean, I, f- I started feeling better. Um, it was, like, I would just take teas and they were, like, whisper stuff in my ear and, like, you know, like, do, like, a, like, a little ceremony every time I would go. And I would go there, like, once a week. And but what was really crazy is that like right after I started feeling better and I stopped going, like that lady like passed away like a week later, which is like I don't know like I don't know like I don't want to be superstitious but like oh my God like what if I was cursed or something like I don't know, 
but um but yeah like like there's a lot of experiences that are like you know like i feel like it's too much of a coincidence where it's like i don't know but yeah so baduras are very interesting i have like a similar experience too i let you bring up like you know like kind of like similar to yours i was like a baby and i was actually in ecuador and they had dressed me up like it was like a celebration you know they have like celebrations or uh, they like celebrate priests and stuff or like saints whatever and they had dressed me up in regalia i was probably like six months and my mom i remember this story so well because my mom would always bring it up and be like what and she'd be like yeah like we took you to this thing like this celebration and you just started wailing your eyes out and like crying and i wouldn't stop but then a family friend took us home and they like rubbed the egg on me like cleansed me with the egg and they were like yeah right after that you stopped crying and i'm like that's i'm like you know also in the ter- the field where i'm like is it coincidence is it not but honestly i don't think that is like they tried everything to make me stop crying and just the the cleanse helped so i feel like there's some truth to that yeah that is pretty interesting i feel like for me it I haven't always been, like, very familiar with, like, natural medicine. Like, it's only been recently, like, probably over the pandemic that, like, when my parents started to try it, then, like, they kind of, what is it, like, they, it was kind of like the or, oregano was the thing that, like, they, that I tried. Like, I was kind of, like, hesitant to try it because I, I, I didn't know if there was, like, side effects or something, but they told me, like, they tried it and then they said it worked, like, really well. And, like, I had, like, a bad, like, flu it wasn't it wasn't covid but it was just like a really bad like flu and like i was dying but uh and then like i tried it and literally like in what is it like a day or two like the what is it my cough like went away and i thought that was just like so like surprising because like i was taking pills as well for the cough and it was just like it was dragging like for like the cough to go away and things like that so i feel like just that's definitely one of like my more like interesting experiences with natural medicine. Any other thoughts? Um, as far as like natural medicines, I like the idea that you were talking about of burning the stuff so that the incense can get everywhere because that's why we have incense candles and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But even as like a natural home remedy, you don't really have to burn. Like even if you have cooking sages and stuff like that just boil some water and pour the spices and and the leaves in there and you'll somehow like cleanse yourself Mm -hmm. because like turmeric and oregano can clear out your sinus like your interview said earlier and like you were saying earlier Mm -hmm. and that's just one of the things that i like to do in terms of simple healing of of just like using that burning method of like incense or just boiling uh leaves and stuff like that Mm -hmm. right well all right then Well, I hope that our listeners were able to enjoy listening to our segment on natural medicine and maybe learn something with insight from our relatives as well as ourselves. So thank you so much for listening, and we will now be having a short promo break. This is What's Up on WLPNLP Lumpen Radio 105.5 FM Chicago. There's Ariandi, and so far we listened to my audio piece on the history of cannabis in the U.S., and Maru talked about the origins of ethiogenic plants. Up next, we have an interview by Alondra talking with individuals involved in the cannabis legacy market and Johnny's interview with Nine, a YOLO album. 
Here's Alondra with her audio piece, Legacy Markets. Hi everyone, this is Alondra and next up we talk to two Legacy Market entrepreneurs who share their experience working within the cannabis legacy market or also known as the cannabis black market. time and the carefree time. But sometimes in these troubled days, the very thoughtlessness of youth has led to a living nightmare. Addiction to drugs, too often acquired with tragic carelessness, may take control of a life. Hey, young America, we need to talk about something called grass. Not that grass. I'm talking about marijuana. It's stimulating. Mind expanding, safer to use than alcohol, and as much a part of growing up as smoking corn silk behind the back fence. Such are the myths concerning marijuana. Hey, Joey, I got some stuff you just gotta try. What is it? Pot, you know, marijuana. Wanna get high? Wanna hit? Come on, smoke it. No, I'm good. No way, man. This stuff's for losers. Chicken, First off, can you both explain how you got involved with the cannabis legacy market industry? Um, so what made me get into the cannabis industry? So I've always, not always, I was a consumer since before I was a business person in it. Um, more with like smoking flour than with edibles, uh, edibles here and there. Um, so I'd say what gave me the opportunity to get into it was actually the pandemic. I think lots of small business started up with the pandemic. Um, I've always been a chef slash baker at heart. Um, I grew up on like Food Network and, you know, watching all these like cooking shows and competitions. And um, it was a nice way to tap into like that creativity part of myself, but also in a way that not just like the taste of stuff is good, but also like you'll have a good time because of the infusion. And so um, the kinds of things that I uh, make are uh, treats, typically like sweets, desserts <clears throat> with um, a cannabis infusion. Um, and so lots, so different kinds of cakes and cookies. Um, and most of my things, I'd say a good chunk of it are more cultural inspired. So I'm, um, in, um, I'm Latina myself. And so from different, um, culture, different countries that I have within my family tree, like I take some, um, recipes from there and then add infusion. So I taught myself how to infuse uh, from flour into coconut, you know, organic coconut oil and into organic sugar and go from there. Uh, yeah, so the way I stepped into the, the cannabis industry was through a program at community college, uh, city colleges of Chicago. Um, I was able to get on a scholarship uh, through Olive Harvey on the cannabis um, dispensary technician like operations. So I was able to get a certificate through Olive Harvey and in the program, uh, we went over a lot of things like relating the cannabis industry, um, like 
uh, dispensary operation, like uh, rules that we have to like follow and regulations saying like, oh, like, oh, we need to be able to like see the, the product at all times, like every square foot. We have to be able to like um understand like the laws when like how much we can carry, uh what constitutes as like um like our privacy and like what kind of like workarounds are with like the law. Uh they taught us the biology of um like the plant, like what like plants in general need, specifically like the cannabis. Um so it was like a like one big like introduction course. Also, I think that's like um, like the thing that helped me the most. Um, and in that course, like we also had like a thing that we had to like make like a business plan. Uh, so we like um in the business plan, I was like, you know what, like I would want to like make infused like like products that you can eat. Um, because I like to cook. Um, and like also like cannabis, I was just like, well, I'll put two and two together, you know. Um, so some of the things that I have made, um. That I, the things that I have sold have mostly been like baked goods, like um, types of cookies, uh, like cupcakes, brownies, like something simple. Um, but then I, I started kind of like reflecting on how the Mexican community um, typically like sees or perceives the cannabis um, plant and how it has like, um, like we have to acknowledge the lenses of like social norms, like like uh the legal system and how it has portrayed like cannabis, uh, and how other like how and the more like social level like immediate household and like how those kind of like perceptions of like cannabis, uh, so I kind of wanted to like change it up a little bit by making traditionally like Mexican like foods into like infused products, like for example, um, uh, a Jamaica that has that is infused with um a dosage of of cannabis, uh like things like aguas de rochata, aguas de pepino, limon, like the mango, things like that. Um, I've been trying to like incorporate uh cultural centric um like uh foods. I'm really liking that theme that's coming up where you're like, you know what, like we're kind of bringing our own little flair and twist to it. Um, and I think that's amazing as well. These high school boys and girls are having a hop at the local soda fountain. Innocently, they dance. Innocent of a new and deadly menace lurking behind closed doors. Marijuana, the burning weed with its roots in hell. There are so many barriers to equitable accessibility for cannabis owners, mainly money, as our guest explains. Uh, so the... The, the thing was like since now the the legal like the legal way of like opening up a dispensary or being able to distribute or grow cannabis products or was like we need the right kind of like paperwork and like a lot of other things in black and brown communities that the access to be able to complete that paperwork and get the license has so many barriers like to it um especially the main one would be money in order to open up a cannabis dispensary, the application itself is very, very rigorous. Um, and, like you have to uh, comply with like federal law, you have to comply with like the, the state law, um, and you have to like meet certain like requirements, and that can cost like 
probably a minimum of like eighty thousand to like ninety thousand to maybe even like more because you have to have you have to be able to afford like an architect to lay out like floor plans you have to have um facial recognition systems point of sale systems things like backup generators backup um like systems uh like the security and like like all these kind of like factors that like um that you have to have ends up costing like a lot of money money that a lot of people like um especially in the in the disproportionately affected areas it's a resources that that's very very limited but for women within the industry they can face even more challenges so I wanted to talk to you specifically because you're a female identifying, um, you know, person within the legacy market. Um, and I feel like it's still very much a male dominated field. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? How has that been for you? Do you think it's been like a like a good thing or has it posed its own challenges? You know, I will say that <clears throat> there are challenges um i definitely feel that lots of whether it's like you know men or more masculine like people tend to um see an opportunity uh kind of can try to like take advantage of, of folks that are more like femme identifying that like we don't know or maybe taking advantage of that we don't have we have less time in the game or things like that um and so it's challenging and it, it can be challenging in that sense. I've been pretty blessed that most of the events that I've done um, have been with like female vendors or female identifying vendors. Um, and I've had pretty good experiences. It, it's interesting because now when I say that, I'm like, I think and the negative experiences, which are few, um, but few but noteworthy have been with like male uh like event coordinators. What would you say are like the pros and cons of, of working within the legacy market versus, you know, if you would, let's say, have like a dispensary or somewhere to sell, quote unquote, legally? Um, the pros, I think, would be you don't have to do as much work just because like it's just like you kind of just do it for you, you know, like I like kind of like I enjoy doing this. So every time like I'm making a sale, just like, OK, like I'm putting my product out there, you know, like I'm put, I'm like putting myself into like my product and I like would like for other people to also like enjoy it. Yeah, the, the cons of working in the legacy market, though, like having to like step around like like the law kind of thing, like saying like, oh, like if I'm making like sales, I have to put that in my taxes. But if I put that in my taxes, um, you know, like right. I could possibly like get in trouble. I could like, you know, like have to like, you know, like do all that. So who makes up the legacy market and who makes up the legal dispensaries? Definitely majority, like, you know, black and brown folks. Um, just I think for the same reasons why it's hard to make it uh a legitimate business because the finances are out of reach um for that so we it tends to be like a community that bands together in my experience the majority of the demographic that i work with um have been like black and brown people um no I, I can't really like say that's like all of the cannabis but 
um the the times that I have worked like with other people, they have um been like black and brown people. Um however I think that is that would be kind of different when we're talking about like exiting like the legacy market just because like once you do and like you're entering like the legal market, like then that's when you tend to find like more like affluent, you know, like groups of people working in the cannabis industry, which also like tend to be, you know, like more like dominant white. Um so yeah, like I think every time like there's a conversation about cannabis, there's also should be a conversation about like the effects that outside like some things have had, like uh how like the legal system and how uh like society and like in general has like um you know like use cannabis um in order to like like jail people in order to like you know like destroy communities in order to um like just disenfranchise the groups of people and now that like dispensaries are like legal like you could go like buy like a little gummy you know like at the store like if it were like you're going to the grocery store or something you know mm -hmm. um so then like while like people are like you know sitting in jail for like life or having like or like doing the exact same thing yeah. so i think that there's like always gonna have to be like so um acknowledgement of like the past and like how we should move forward um and i think that uh decriminalizing a lot of things to be able to like give space for like legacy markets to be able to to flourish instead of like bundling all of that and like into like more like affluent and like people who are like already have like the, mm -hmm. the capital to to start it and just to further emphasize a survey conducted by marijuana business daily in 2017 showed that only 19 percent of dispensary cannabis owners were minorities, and 80%, the majority, were white dispensary owners. Nixon administration official has admitted that the war on drugs is all about throwing black people in jail. He said, quote, the Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black. But by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. So how do we create equal accessibility and opportunities in the cannabis industry, specifically for those in the legacy market who want to be included in this legal cannabis market? The system that we have now selling, you know, quote unquote, legally, it's not working. Obviously, for anyone that's like paying attention, it's not working. What would you what would you think are like kind of some some things that need to change within the system. I mean, the things that they, uh, like some of the things to help give a leg up that are in place, like expand those like greatly, like, um, 
I guess for the amount of slots, maybe increase the slots for sure in everything <laughs> across the board. Right. Uh, you know, all of the categories. Um, because there's really when when the system has such few slots, it becomes it becomes a competition. And in any competition, when you have more resources, when you and resources, whether it's financially or, or connections, like those po- people are going to get those slots. And resources, you know, are are something that is something that is typically like you know not seen as much within like our disinvested communities. Mm-hmm. So increasing increasing slots, seeing I guess maybe even asking having more town halls with people that want to be involved. Like, what would make it less of a barrier? I mean, finance is a, is a huge one. Um, more um, how would I say it? More qualifying. Um, qualifiers like for folks that have had a past history you know that's great uh there to help you know even the balance is there um and even just apart from things that direct affect businesses like you know let's get every one out that's in prison for something that we're all enjoying out right here like apart from you know like the money and and business mm-hmm. aspect of like that by itself mm-hmm. so Because I think one of the things that would have to happen in order to kind of like help with that is removing legal barriers uh, in the sense that you can't like the regulations on a schedule one drug, it, like they're pretty like they're pretty rough, right? Like saying like you literally cannot like move it, distribute it, like nothing, you know, like so I think having like starting from there kind of like moving like cannabis either completely I, I would i would i would say to remove it completely from those like the schedules um or like the like you know compromise would be like moving it down so like make it like a schedule like two or three maybe even like four something that's like not as harsh as like schedule one The legacy market is made out of entrepreneurs who don't have the resources to break into the legal market, and they shouldn't be penalized for it. Many of them are pushing the industry forward, despite the racist laws that work against them, and they should be acknowledged and given an opportunity to grow their business, especially given that this is an industry that has disproportionately negatively impacted black and brown folks. I want to thank our two guests, who have shared their experiences working within the legacy market. Unfortunately, we are unable to share their information due to possible legal repercussions. But we want to thank them regardless for being here and sharing their stories in order to create awareness and opportunities. Look at it, man. <laughs> I wonder what he's been smoking. Oh, whatever it is, I wish we had some, man. Well, wow, man, look, man, we gotta score some before we go on. Yeah, but where, man? I don't know, man. There's gotta be somebody in this town that's got a lot of smoke. Yeah. Hey, I'm Johnny, and that was Alondra's interview. Now, I'm going to play my interview with Nine, a former alumni of YOLO who previously did a similar medical show during their time here and their experience with the cannabis industry after they've left.
Hi, my name is Johnny, and today we are talking to Nine, who is a YOLO alumni and is someone who has had firsthand experience in the cannabis industry. Today, we will talk to her about the, her experience with cannabis and their thoughts upon the form of it as a medicine. Hello, thank you for having me here. So excited to be a part of the show. I just want to start with a couple of questions of your experience of when you were previously working in the cannabis industry from like a little bit of personalization to your own points of view of what you saw. And the first question I would like to start off with is when and how did you begin working with the cannabis within the cannabis industry? And like, what were the qualifications or certifications needed to start? Yeah. Um, so when I started with the cannabis industry, it's been legally, it's been legal on the medical side since 2012 here in Illinois. It became recreationally legal in 2020. So that's when it actually sparked my interest because um, I felt like the medical um, aspect of it was kind of hard to get into. And now that it was recreational, I felt like, okay, this is maybe something that I can approach so when i became familiar with like entering that space officially was when i was attending community college at harold washington college downtown and i saw basically like an ad on the elevator that specified that olive harvey community college was offering classes to be certified as a dispensary operations um, agent so i was definitely like okay i want to check that out so i I signed up for the for the courses, did the orientation, and it ended up being like four classes within like a three to four month period that I had to take. I did become certified in basic dispensary operations. So like some of my classes that I was taking was like cannabis history, cannabis in the law, general information on cannabis itself. And we also took a business class. And it was again, four months and then I became certified around April of 2020. And then with that program, they had a lot of resources to help us get into like the industry and then companies. Um, I did take a little bit of a break. I didn't really know what to do with that certification since um, one, the industry recreation was super new. I hadn't even ever shopped at a dispensary and I was already certified to work at one. But I took a break. I didn't actually start looking for a job in the industry till about, I want to say like June, July. And I didn't actually hear anything back until November. And I officially became hired December of 2020. That's when I I was welcomed into one of the companies that we have here in Chicago. That sounds really great. And just to like follow up on like the process of completing that course to get those qualifications and the certification, when you first started it, was it like going into there, there was a lot of expectations towards like, okay, you know what you, you have the qualifications, you know what you're supposed to do. We're not going to micromanage you versus there being a lot of policies, a lot of rules and stuff that you had to, had to abide by, just pretty much stuff like that. Like what was the difference between that? If you if the, if you need me to rephrase the question or if not, yeah. Um, so basically, um, and then correct me if I'm not like answering your question. But um, when I was in the class learning about like the law itself, um, I was a little overwhelmed because it was a lot to go into, not only with the laws that you have to follow um, working at a dispensary, but also the laws that you have to follow as a consumer. And then also like entering the dispensary, really seeing how that goes into play. Um, 
yeah it was a little overwhelming there's a lot of regulations that go in play it's not like you're just working with like retail clothes um so you're definitely do feel micromanaged um you're being watched at all times there's a this uh i'm sorry there's a camera almost at every angle in the dispensary mm -hmm. from when you come in to the outside area to you browsing the space um even for employees the vault, the break room, it's super, super regulated um, to the point also that when we were, when I was taking those classes at Olive Harvey, and again, I mentioned I had never shopped at a dispensary, I had kind of that like initial um, thought that everyone kind of has in the beginning of like, oh, maybe is there a product going to be out? Are we going to be able to smell it? Are we going to be able to see it? But um, I learned that like everything's super regulated, sealed, you can't take it out. Um, so yeah, it was definitely I like I felt overwhelmed a little bit. Um, also because it was something new and I wanted to make sure that I'm doing my job right because any policies that you're not following correctly can um, you know, lead for you to be terminated from the job. Um, and I feel like you don't really get to see that pressure in the classroom the same way that you get to see it when you actually step foot into like the job. Um, does that answer the, the question a little bit? Actually, yeah, I was going to say that was like my next question as far as like one question comparing uh, the classroom experience to working the actual job. I was going to say like what's some of the tasks that you had to do like on top of all of that stress with the possibility of uh, like being overwhelmed with the possibility of termination if you somehow slip up under all of these rules and regulations, because I know it's possible to also get terminated without even realizing it. You might do something where you're like, okay, I didn't realize that this went against the rule. And I don't know if they're as forgiving as they are in any other industry in terms of work-wise. Like, are they really strict with their punishments or are they just like, you know what, just go ahead and do your work. It was an actual mistake. We understand that. And just like, even as far as like the the policies dealing with customers too, like do you have to abide by that? The, is the customer always right rule or do you have a say in the customer interactions? Like, okay, I will refuse you service because you came in here with negative energy type of situations. Because I know you don't get those opportunities in class considering that the job is actually hands-on. Yeah, so definitely, um... I do want to mention too that those classes, I remember the person teaching us like the general cannabis was a person managing a dispensary. So I was really thankful for that because she basically gave us her rundown based on how she runs the business and her expectations and in combination with the laws and the regulations. Um, but with that being said, I also had my own expectations when coming into the job. Um, as far as like with management um, and like the whole um, the customer's always right idea. Um, so it, it gets tricky, right? Because with one, the industry being so different and then being so new, um, a lot of the employees in there don't have background in cannabis, including management, you know, so that kind of creates an issue a little bit almost with um again with like customers always being right there's that idea right but then it's like you have to keep in mind that there's laws this is not like i can't just hand you a discount for a product that is um 
federally illegal, you know? Um, and I think that that's, that's also, it goes into play with like, um, every dispensary is different um, because every dispensary has different management and different management styles. Um, but I think it was definitely hard with just the industry being new in general. So many people coming in and also other people coming in from different states where it was already legal. They come in here with those ideas already. But as far as the customer being right always is not the case in the cannabis industry. Um, as far as like their expectations with how we're supposed to like quote unquote fix an issue for them. Um, for example, like as far as like faulty product, right? The people couldn't just come back. And to this day, people can't just go back to a dispensary and like make an even return. That's just not how it works. Um, so there was a lot of like expectations from the customers that we weren't meeting in that sense. Again, because also customers were um, traveling to Chicago. They had expectations from other states. Um, but yeah, definitely I did wish that we had a little bit more support when it came to managing customers and the way that they um interacted with us because it wasn't one of those cases where like hey you're being rude we're gonna ask you to leave it was more like in some cases some of these people that are being rude were medical patients and we can't turn them away because essentially this is their medicine so it is like a little bit different but um i think that at the end of the day what made it harder was just management because kind of how you said like if you slip up on something like how serious is it so when management is not um, like holding themselves accountable for the things that we're all supposed to be following, it's easy to kind of like turn a blind eye when someone made a mistake. But really, if that mistake is caught by like the state, because also um, I do want to mention that going back to the micromanaging, um, it feels micromanaging as well because the state can tap into any dispensary cameras at any time without letting anyone know. And if they see something, they can call the store like, hey, why is your employee doing this? Or hey, why is the vault like this? Um, so it's like, if anyone makes a mistake, we can all be held accountable. But with people not being so educated and having these higher positions, it makes it really hard because then there's people like buttenders that have like the smallest, not the smallest, but the lowest in rank position that are doing, you know, following the rules and, and training new people that are coming in like the right way. But then there's management that is not really like on top of it. It just creates like a weird effect. I don't know if that makes sense where everyone's kind of on a different page and we're all supposed to be on the same one because if we're not. There's some really serious repercussions that can happen here, not only for us, but for the company and the customers as well. That's a really good way to put it because I was I had a follow up question with the one with the part about how you said that customers come out of state and their expectancy from one state to another is is completely different. My question for you was that um, the people. People versus the people from out of state, what's the customer interaction is like? What's the cu customer interaction like? And which memory has stood out the most wi uh, with you amongst the people from Chicago buying versus the ones from out of state buying? Because I'm pretty sure you can tell who's from out of state coming to get Yeah, them. most definitely. Well, I, I think that also with customer interaction, one thing to take into account is the neighborhood that you're in. Um, I know that like, you know, Chicago has a lot of dispensaries in different neighborhoods, but I particularly was working in the north side um, near Wrigleyville, to be specific, just to give also the listeners an idea of like the demographics that were coming into the dispensary. Um, yeah, like I mentioned, I feel like 
medical patient, super entitled, very demanding, um, very, I need to, I need my stuff right away. I need to get attended right away. I'm here first. I have a medical card. Um, and then recreational users, I feel like we're more curious, especially from Chicago, more like um, seeking product knowledge, um, asking questions, being super calm with the process. And then there's those people that are coming in from out of state um, with their expectations of wanting to see jars and wanting to smell product, um, being confused by the setup of the dispensary um, because the setup of the dispensary basically all that you're seeing around are either accessories or merchandise or um, like uh, tools to, you know, consume with, but you never saw like the actual product. So that's one thing that like a lot of um, out-of-state customers would give us a hard time and kind of even like laugh at it all the time. But then there was those customers who like would go in detail about like the industry in their state and then mention like oh i hope that the same happens here in illinois as well soon you know like we're all like the laws are always changing so they were hoping to see some of what they have in their own state here in illinois as well um but i think that it's also very different because um illinois has like um it's like very city-like and there's not a lot of um what is it called cultivation centers in Illinois. So again, comparing to like other states where let's say like California, like there's a lot of like good weather out there. People can grow outside. It's just like the process is so different. So yeah, I think that like for the most part, like recreational users in Illinois were kind of like willing to get educated. And then a lot of times they just kind of come back asking for the same products or similar products because they found like that comfort zone. And then compared to like out of state, they just want to try like a new name, a new strain that they've never heard of. Maybe they have it here and they, they don't have it in their state. But um, yeah, so going to like a memorable um time with a customer. Um, so it was with a customer that lives in the city. And I remember this perfectly because of the details of our conversation. Um, I was ringing him out. I was working at the register um, this day. And um, he was like really sweaty, right? So I was like, oh, like, it's hot outside, you know? And he was like, yeah, it's hot. Um, I just jogged it here. I'm trying to make it back home in like 30 minutes because I have a meeting and I work from home and I was like oh okay I was like that's super sweet and I remember that day specifically because I was stressed okay yeah so also touching up on like the aspect of like a memorable experience I mean I was honestly always stressed at the dispensary but um yeah so this I want to emphasize that he was a white male specifically because it goes with my story so he was like sweaty and I asked him like, oh, you know, it's like, it's really hot outside. And he was like mentioning like, yeah, I just jogged it here. I have to jog back home in time for a meeting. Um, he was like, you think I'm going to make it in time? And he was just kind of making a joke out of it because also he had waited in line for a while. So I was like, oh, cool. Like you get to work from home. And he was like telling me all about his job, how he works from home. And then I went into telling him like, wow, that must be really nice. Like I wish I could work from home. And then he said, well, it seems like you have the dream job, right? Like, 
selling cannabis. That's the dream. And I took a second. And usually, you know what? I'm that type of person that just like keeps the peace and like I'll keep my comments to myself. But that day, I'm so proud of myself because I responded to him how I truly wanted to. I was like, no, I'm like, this is not the dream. Selling cannabis for a white man is not the dream. And he just like shook his head and like shocked and didn't say anything for the rest of the transaction. And I giggled at his silence because he's a white man and I'm selling him cannabis that another white man is responsible for the product. You know, I don't know if it goes into play with the picture, but that's when we had initially started taking tips. The man was super silent for the entire transaction and I finished it and I was like, you know, thank you so much. Have a nice day, you know, customer service. And he took his wallet out took $20 out and put it in my tip jar. And honestly, that was like one of the most memorable things because I also didn't mean to say it in a bad way, but it's also kind of like, this is the reality of it. This is not like what everyone makes it seem like, oh, you work with cannabis. It's super fun. It's super chill. You get a lot of perks. Um, It's really stressful working in the industry here in Illinois. At least I could say that. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that, especially compared to the people that don't know that these workers are working in the cannabis industry for money and they're that they're not like the consumer who has the money and the time to waste. I mean, if he can draw there to the dispensary within that 30 minute time frame but before his meeting to buy that, the way that you said it, it didn't come off as necessarily racist. It goes into my next question of going like, okay, where was the dispensary you, you previously worked at located or like what was the community surrounding it like? Was it mostly people of color? Was it like a mixture of people being being different races? It wasn't necessarily, it didn't necessarily feel racist the way that you said that. It felt more of like, okay, you, you don't understand what's actually going on in the circumstance versus you just actually giving your opinion on something. And I can understand why that would be memorable because I'm also, I was also going to ask during that time of like dealing with the community, what's also some other scary or like astounding memories that stood out to you as well aside from just working with the customer interaction like were there things with co-workers and stuff like that did you face discrimination and such yeah so like I mentioned honestly to be really transparent one of the main reasons why I'm not working on the dispensary anymore it's because it was really stressful being in Wrigleyville we have a well they have a lot of uh, foot traffic with the stadium being there. Um, there's also a lot of bars. There's always traffic in Wrigleyville. So that would create like that dispensary has lines outside. So when we're working, we're working nonstop, stop, like customer after customer after customer. And then a lot of times you're helping a customer that's really upset because they waited in line. And then you kind of go into play. Like, first of all, we're lucky this is even legal, you know? And it goes into like, why are you talking to me? Like I am the one doing something wrong for you. So then that's when that goes into play with people not understanding that like, hey, this is still federally legal. You can't just come up to me upset and ask me to fix something for you or ask for a discount. And then that kind of goes into play with the whole management, not kind of really backing you up. But then it kind of leaves me as a consumer also disappointed because when we look at the history of like cannabis I just felt like it was like idolized and like kind of put into like a spotlight just to put it but it wasn't like acknowledged for what it is and now you have me feeling like a slave for something that like 
the white man is making a lot of money, but our people of color are incarcerated for. And then you have these very entitled people demanding product when there's still people in jail for this. So that's when like a lot of confliction came to me, right? Because then, so it's my job. I need to pay my bills and I like the industry, right? But then you see the reality of it and and it's almost like, do I want to support this? Because this is, it almost just feels like a front, right? Like, and then, you know, a lot of companies have like equity programs, right? Where they donate like money to people who were incarcerated or affected by the war on drugs and all these little programs that are almost like just umbrellas to kind of cover up that these people are still making money for things that people of color are criminalized for. And going into that too, I feel like also cannabis isn't accessible for everyone at a dispensary. It's really expensive. So that goes into who's shopping there, right? These are people that have a lot of money that can pay a 50 to $100 tax on their product. And they can get away with walking out of here and just be okay. That's not accessible for a lot of people in low-income communities that can also benefit from the benefits of cannabis, you know? So it was like a lot of stress, not only in the job itself, but also with like your morale and like, what do I, what should I do? What is right? You know? And then also like, I felt really empowered being a woman of color and being super young in the industry. But then I also felt like I don't want to put myself through this. Like, I feel like almost like I wanted to give the industry time to grow and get it together and then kind of re-enter myself. But I don't know. I just it just leaves me in like a weird space. I'm definitely still like keeping up with like laws and like new products that are coming out because I like to be updated. But it's something that I'm really questioning. Like it's something that you have to have like the passion and mind for it because it's going to be stressful. And mm-hmm. I'm not, I don't deal with stress very well. So it was definitely something that I stray away because the same way that it was affecting me, it was affecting a lot of my coworkers, just those expectations. But you see, like, and compared to them, there's just coworkers that could see that picture. And then there's people like me that I see the picture and I don't want to be a part of this anymore. So yeah. That's- mm-hmm. I can understand that, especially considering that when in terms of that stress and dealing with the community and stuff, when a community starts making the workers themselves feel stressed, that's when some of the workers start consuming the cannabis product that they're also selling, which is feeding back into those industries and those mostly male white dominated dispensaries and locations because yeah there are people of color in the industry that might have a couple footholds and seats up there with the white people but it's mostly white people that have gentrified it took control of it and made more of a profit than most of these communities that they're placing these dispensaries in and as far as that i wanted to say like after you left how has it affected you then by in terms of like how has it affected you seeing people go there? Like, is it still the same type of process? I still see this many type of people. I still see this normal amount versus, okay, this one location is picking up. Just stuff like that. How is it afterwards, after you left the industry, is it still affecting you? Or has your point of view changed at all? Yeah, so I think after I left the dispensary, I started just wanting to incline to like smaller businesses. Um, but I also did start shopping at other dispensaries just because I was curious to see like the process. Um, I did also go shop at the dispensary that I worked at and I like saw the point of view from like a customer and also like from me working there before, like just the pressure that people are put through because they, it's like almost like you're, I wish I could explain it, but it's like a high demand, like 
almost event that everybody wants to get into and everyone's mad because this time is passing. Um, but it definitely like led me to want to be a part of the industry later down the line, but on a different aspect outside of the retail and mm. the, um, just like the dispensary itself, maybe like be part of like the like the creative team with like uh, marketing or honestly, like for me, cultivation, that's where it's really at. But with the cultivation centers being like two to three or even four hours away from Chicago, that's also a, a big issue for like someone in the city that wants to get into cultivation. Um but yeah, and I I also became more inclined to be educated around people that I feel more identified with. So rather than being trained about a product based on a training that, again, a certain demographic of people created, I'm being educated through other outlets like other women who smoke, women of color. Um, and that goes into play really big for me because um, we kind of touched up on discrimination earlier. And I feel like as a woman, I did face a lot of discrimination because um, it was a lot of times where I was helping like um, masculine like figures and they would want to just talk to like another male because they felt like what I was saying was not enough for them or I didn't know enough. So that was always an issue with us. Like my coworkers who are friends as well, they would, all, we would always get together. Like he thinks, I don't know what I'm talking about. You know, like they're going to tell you the same thing when you talk to another coworker. So that was really big. And that was really annoying because it's like, you're coming here with questions. I'm a professional. I'm answering you, but because I'm Brown and I'm a woman, you don't want to take my word to have like some, um truth in it you know so that was kind of like really hard and I feel like coming out of the industry like I want to empower like more women and just more people that are kind of in the shadows right now that should not be in the shadows because we're very here we're just not here in the shadow of corporate no literally because I want to just elaborate on that a little bit that is very true to the point where if customers see that they would start to think that there is something wrong with certain employees whenever they come in. It could be loads of regulars coming in, but it depends on who they go and talk to. You have some customers that will come in and be like, you know what, I'm going to go to this worker because they, this person is nice. This person is nice and they've treated me with respect and, and helped me get my stuff, my, my product that I'm looking for. It helped me get in and out, no problems. Everything was smooth versus dealing with difficult customers who are just difficult people in their everyday life that they come into that industry and now they're making it harder for the women younger people because say if it's not even just say if it's not even just about gender it's more about age at this point you have a lot of people that would like you say a lot of people that would be like okay based off your, your appearance you look like you don't know what you're talking about which leads into my next question is uh, of do you have any advice specifically for marginalized people hoping to get into the, the industry of like where to start, what to avoid, and what to definitely look for, look out for in terms of opportunity if they decide to go work in the, the industry through customer service? Yeah, I would say definitely remember the power in your voice and your opinion. Because at the end of the day, um, when you become part of the industry, you are making the industry. And a lot of these companies will not be, you know, successful without like the butt tenders. 
So definitely know that like if you want to enter the industry like as a bartender, you're important and your role is huge in the company. So definitely like speak up, um, kind of like quote unquote, like know your worth, you know, know when they're just, it's just the company that's not for you or it's a company that is for you because I know every dispensary is different. Um, I would say definitely keep in mind that um, it's a changing industry. So there's different things are happening all the time with the law, with the um, expectations and policies of the stores. And that kind of can get a little frustrating because then you all have to figure it out together as management, as a worker. Um, So just keep in mind that there are going to be like lots of changes um, happening all the time. You're going to be they're going to teach you how to do one thing a certain way. And the next week you're going to have to do it completely different. Um, So that happens a lot. And it can be a little bit frustrating if like you like consistency. Um, What else? I would say definitely don't be discouraged because you don't have background. Don't let that discourage you. Um, A lot of times dispensaries are looking for general community. um, I'm sorry, not community general customer service so like if you had like retail experience or customer service experience for a certain amount of time but no background in cannabis like don't be discouraged definitely throw your foot in the door also be okay with no's like if people reject you one time don't stop there like people are looking for you like people want people like you um but yeah it's definitely one of those things that it can be tricky it can take a while to get into the industry. I definitely do recommend the Olive Harvey program. I think in general, it just welcomes you not only to the topic and like opening like the perspective of what it is in Illinois, but it actually connects you to like professionals who um, maybe work at a dispensary or who know someone or who are like law attorneys um, and cannabis advocates. Um, you just meet a lot of connections So I would say definitely explore connections, like start exploring connections if you want to build that background, stay educated, definitely learn about the cannabinoids, um, be ready to educate other people and be very patient because it's since it's very new, um, it's going to be like new for a lot of people. And then going into like also older people, like they have their own memories of cannabis back in their day. So it's also kind of like centering back to like being able to switch off for for um, the customer, depending on who you're talking to, right? You're going to talk to all types of people. Um, but I would say for the most part, just to keep an open mind and be ready to learn and know your worth. I think that's one of the main three things to keep in mind um, when entering this industry. That sounds really informative. And thank you for sharing that experience, especially for those things to look out for, because going into any type of industry is really hard to get definitive information that will help you get by. You have to learn the ropes, learn shortcuts, learn different things, especially with the cannabis industry is not that easy. Like you said, it's not that easy to get into, but it's also not that easy to come by the information that you, you need to make it in there once you get that foot in, like you said. And education can only go as far as you take it. Like you say, you have to look for those connections and stuff. And I'm going to be honest, that's it. That That's all I have for the questions. Was there anything else that you'd like to input? Um, I just want to say that there is no right or wrong way to get educated on cannabis. Um, I have watched YouTube channels. I have 
read books. I have talked to people. And like, honestly, all of it is super valid. All of it um, matters. And I would just say that it's growing. It's going to change. But definitely it's very like gate kept with like people who are already in power and want to keep a certain type of people in power. So definitely just be like really honest with yourself. But other than that, I'm really happy to be a part of the show. This topic is super important. Um, and I am happy to know that there's a production happening for this. And thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for your time and your participation. All right. Thank you for your time and your participation. My name is Johnny. And my name is Nine. And that concludes our segment of this interview. Thanks for tuning in and you're listening to What's Up on WLPN LP Lumpen Radio, 105.5 FM Chicago. My name is Johnny and good night. Have a good night. Hi everyone, I'm Madhu, pronouns they them. And this was What's Up on LPN LP Lumpen Radio, 105.5 FM Chicago. This episode was Dreaming Green, an Earth Day special on healing plants. And we talked a lot about the history of cannabis to the history and origins of psychedelics and entheogenic plants. We also learned about herbal medicines and botanicas. And we even got some insight on working in the cannabis industry and legacy markets. I'm here with Johnny, Sam, and Ariandi. And we want to thank you for listening along and wish you the best on your healing journey and hope that today's episode offered some resources to help you along. Happy International Mother Earth's Day. And that's the conclusion of our program. Brought to you by the fine folks at... Oh, not you again. No! And y'all, who let her back in? And that's a wrap. We hope you enjoyed whatever it is you just heard, heartwarming interviews, tear-jerking stories, magnificent music, and the sound of our voices. Because God knows that this is the best content on the airwaves. Don't forget to follow YOLO on all their social medias at YOLO Kali. And you can find all our audio content on SoundCloud, MixCloud, and Apple Podcasts. We bougie like that. Well, that's it. Bye. See you next Saturday from 12 to 2 p.m. for another episode of What's Up?